Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and a little later on in the programme we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero Sir Jeff Hurst who helped the nation lift the World Cup 54 long years ago today, July 30th, 1966. But before then, I'm delighted delighted to actually be joined on the programme by David Reaney. David is practice principal of his own dental practice, David Reaney and Associates in County Tyrone, Northern Ireland. Uh, David, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Scott. Uh, thank you for your kind invitation. It's a real pleasure for us having you um, on board with us, David. And um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss your take on leadership. But before we delve into that side of the conversation, considering that today's business leaders, I think it's fair to say, are going through one of the greatest challenges of our time in the shape of COVID-19, it would be remiss of me not to ask you just how the pandemic has affected you and your operations. Yeah, certainly it's challenging times for most businesses, as you say, um, not least for um, my domain, which is general dental practice. Um, as you say, I'm involved in the practice principle in a large rural practice here in County Tyrone. Um, the COVID-19 crisis has had a significant uh, impact on dental practices across the UK and probably across the world uh, in that event. Uh, During the lockdown, practices across the UK were largely closed, uh, with certain uh, regions of the UK uh, dentists not seeing patients face-to-face, so there was no provision of dental treatment over that time. Uh, In Northern Ireland here, general dental practitioners were involved with triaging and relief of pain for some patients who required extractions. Uh, There was five uh, urgent dental care centres set up across Northern Ireland and those centres were charged with the management of patients requiring uh, aerosol generating procedures uh, to relieve their pain and also to provide some oral surgery cover uh, across the province. The issue in dentistry is aerosol generating procedures which um, involves the use of a drill or anything that involves a water spray especially in the mouth, with a high risk of uh, significant viral load in that region, uh, will impact or increase the risk of uh, transmission through to dentists and dental staff. So there's there's a significant problem with aerosol-generating procedures in dentistry. So from the 20th of uh, July, practices in Northern Ireland were able to reopen, um, albeit with a reduced treatment provision. The financial impact of this obviously is unparalleled. And a recent British Dental Association survey uh, held in Northern Ireland, which opened on the 9th of July and ran, I think, for seven days. There were 161 practices out of 371 practices um, surveyed or replied to the survey. And the main issues here were the follow time, F-A-L-L-O-W, which is uh, a downtime that uh, is put in place uh, in the surgery uh, between patients. So if you work producing an aerosol generating procedure, you have at the end of that procedure, patient leaves, dentist leave, and the surgery door is closed for 60 uh, minutes. That's like zero minutes, uh, which obviously has an impact on throughput through the practice and obviously uh, income generation is affected accordingly. 
The other issue is PPE, which we all hear about in the press most days of the week. Cost of PPE is somewhere between thirty and forty pounds per patient. Um, and if you take it that a small filling in a in a back tooth, uh, the fee generated for that under the National Health Service would be something like nine pounds thirty nine. So obviously that is uh, in the longer term not particularly viable. Uh, so the survey revealed that most practices will be financially challenged. There'll be a decrease in NHS treatment provision, and most practice owners are not confident that they can maintain the, uh, that they can maintain the current level of staffing. So, in my opinion, the ability of dentists to provide a normal standard of care uh, has been significantly reduced over the COVID nineteen period. So it seems that the industry is going to be hampered in the long term as well as a result of that until things do hopefully pick up in the future. With regard yeah. to, um, of course, government guidelines to allow the safe reopening of dentists and also PPE provision, um, what are your personal thoughts on that? Because there's been a great deal of debate as to just how clear certain guidelines have been, of course. Yeah, the, the guidelines have been, have been pretty clear uh, in terms of the level of PPE that's required. Um, it, it's it's quite uh, a laborious process. I'm actually uncomfortable wearing that PPE with gowns and FFP3 masks required for aerosol generating procedures. Um, so the staff have obviously all have had to be trained for that. Uh, we've had to implement the guidelines that the Department of Health have and the the local uh, health board have have uh, laid down for us. Um, there is obviously a significant restriction uh, across the UK compared with other parts of the world in terms of that fallow time that I mentioned earlier. Um, in the south of Ireland, Republic of Ireland, which is 20 miles away from where I am, the fallow time is 20 minutes. Um, and the, the level of PP is, is slightly reduced from what we need in the north. Um, so yes, there's, there are, there are, um, Variations and it, it, that causes difficulty for for practice and practitioners. Um, variations even locally and, and well, certainly locally in Northern Ireland, but also across the UK in terms of the requirements um, in private practice and in NH, NHS practices that that practices private practice have a wee bit more freedom and not as particularly restrained as as NH, NHS practices are. So it's challenging times, yeah. From a sort of business leader's perspective, of course, running your own practice, is there anything that you would say that this period of crisis management has taught you in that capacity? Um, It's in the early days when practices closed, uh, dentists were obviously, uh, as we we proceeded through the the initial um, lockdown, if you like, dentists were keen to get back to work. Uh, There was some... I'm going to use the word panic, almost that word, uh, within the profession to try and get back to generate revenue again, especially for those private practices who weren't supported by financial support schemes that were offered to NHS practices. Um, so social media came into play and then just started to, in some ways, panic. And I don't think that was particularly helpful. I think um, it's it's probably better to rely on good sources of information. For example, uh, information provided from the uh, British Dental Association has been particularly helpful and, and often timely as well. So I think it's, it's a matter of acting on 
on appropriate advice and waiting for that advice and then acting accordingly rather than dwelling into the social media and opinion of various um, uh, various people across the profession. Some, some of that has not been helpful. And um, when it comes to sort of grappling with all of these challenges from sort of a staff and mental health and well-being perspective, um, how has that been? How has the attitude of the staff sort of measured up during this time? Because we often hear it said that in times of adversity and difficulty such as this, people can bring out the best, but also the worst in themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think the staff were were reassured. We tried to reassure staff through the through the crisis. We had uh, regular meetings with the associates, and my management had had meetings ongoing with the nurses. Certainly, the furlough scheme and uh, the the dental um, financial support schemes have been helpful in sustaining practices um, and and staff through that period. Um, from a mental health point of view, I'm sure anxiety levels were um, were reasonably high due to that uncertainty. As in, in, in any particular situation where there is uncertainty, anxiety then does come in. But hopefully that was quelled by the financial support stroke furlough schemes that, that were offered. But certainly from my perspective, um, I certainly find that it was, you have to look at opportunities in this. I find that when I wasn't working, I couldn't work. I mean, in dentistry, the practices were closed. There was a limit to what we could do. Um, it was an opportunity to get fitter, um, to look at to look at the business review, the direction of the business overall, um, and look at the positives that that would come out of that. Um, so certainly, in terms of mental health workload, my personal workload was down clinically. I wasn't able to work clinically, so. Um, I would say that I was in, in probably a less stressed and more fit state than I was normally when I was working, to be, to be quite honest with you. And when you do have a challenge on the horizon that you know you have to deal with, and I'm not just talking in terms of COVID-19, but any significant sort of obstacle, how is it that you sort of mentally prepare yourself for dealing with that and getting over that hurdle? Uh, it's a matter of, I suppose, it's a matter of, of, of keeping yourself generally in, in good shape physically. Um, that that involves obviously some some form of exercise. Um, of, I mean, things like pro- proper diet, sleep, those things are obviously key. Um, coping, various coping strategies, I think everyone copes with these eventualities in different ways in very different ways and people have different coping strategies one of one of mine is simply just to to, to almost to ignore it sometimes i think there's enough to deal with sometimes at work and if you want if you bring that work home with you or those issues home with you that can be a problem so my one of my coping strategies is just to be able to close the door go out of the practice um in the evening and leave all that behind uh, there are things obviously you have to deal with out of hours. Um, the things that you have to consider, but I think if you're dwelling on these things twenty four seven, that is not healthy. You have to learn to to discipline um, yourself in a sense mentally, in that you can, um, in some ways, block out and negate the negatives of of those of anything that is going to impact on you. Uh, deal, deal with those accordingly. Give them due consideration when you can, uh, in proper time. And I think that's where the benefit of this this COVID crisis has come in that that we've been able to to back off and we, we've been able to to look and review 
not only probably working lives, but personal lives as well. We've spent more time with our families. As I say, we're getting fitter. Look at the environmental uh, considerations here. People are traveling less. They're doing calls by Zoom, by phone, less face-to-face meetings. And I think this is the way that the future is going to go with um, with society. It obviously has an impact on inner cities, and and uh, but that's that's for another day, and that's probably getting off uh, off the question there. So, and based upon the experience that you have running your own practice and other businesses um, as well, of course you have a second practice and also a dental laboratory business. If you had to give some yeah. advice to somebody who was about to perhaps start their first day in a leadership role in any sort of firm, what advice would you go about giving them? Uh, that would depend on what level of leadership they were coming in at. Uh, leadership obviously uh, does not necessarily need to, to be from the top of an organization. So someone can, can be in a leadership role in, a, let's say, a more junior position. I think it's very important that you come into any of these positions from a, uh, being prepared to learn, uh, to be prepared to, to work with people, uh, and in some senses for people. Um, you have to be able to motivate and empower uh, others around you. You need some sort of vision. You need some sort of project that you'd be working on to see it through to fruition, hopefully. You need to treat people honestly, um, obviously with integrity, fairly, and with some degree of humility. I think humility is very important. Um, It's a matter of doing the right thing, not just to be seen by doing the right thing, but actually doing the right thing and treat people as you would expect to be treated yourself, I think is is very important as well. Uh, You should be able to support those people around you um, and help them out and be prepared to help out. Uh, as I say, you need to be positive. You need to have some drive and enthusiasm for what you're doing and be professional in your position as well. That's uh, particularly important in the in the profession that I'm in, the practice of dentistry. And thinking now about the next 12 to 18 months, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, yeah. um, David, what do you envision being on the horizon as you sort of grapple with the challenges of adjusting to the new normal and what do you hope to achieve over this period? Yeah, I think we're seeing a, a certainly a period of, of ongoing uncertainty, uh, especially as is discussed in, uh, very recently in the press with this threat of a second wave. Um, the, the vaccine is, is they're making progress with that, but it doesn't seem to be something that's imminent. Um, we would hope that we get the coronavirus crisis under control, whether that be local restricted lockdowns or possibly, uh, as in the case of Spain, more, more draconian measures taken there. Um, I would hope from my own personal point of view that I'll see my practices resume to uh, as near normal practice as possible, providing dental treatment and care for our patients that we've treated over the years. Uh, that will necessitate a, a reduction in the follow time that will hopefully see a reduction in PPE. PPE costs uh, are crippling for practices at the moment. I would hope to be able to retain those staff that I've worked with and have worked with me over the past in some cases, 20, 30 years, uh, and with their help, uh, bring new technologies, new techniques, and implant dentistry, prosthodontics um, to to my patients for the benefit of those patients. Uh, I have a duty of care and a professional responsibility to, to my patients, and I would hope to be able to meet these obligations as a dentist and also as a practice owner. 
David, it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the programme today. And I sincerely hope there will be some positive news um, on that front to share in the next few months. And I think just given how insightful it's been having you with us, it would be fantastic to catch up in the future and just see how some of those hopes are being borne out. Very happy to do that, Scott. I look forward to, to talking in a few months' time. That'll be very interesting to see it, uh, where we are at that, at that particular time. I certainly you. relish that opportunity myself as well, David. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. Thanks very much, Scott. Thank you. Talk later. I was speaking today to David Reaney, practice principal of David Reaney and Associates. And to all of those tuning in today as well, do continue to look after yourselves and others and be sensible because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, Next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, as well as scoring over 200 league goals during his professional career for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. Sir Jeff became most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. That came after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago today on the 30th of July 1966. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and all of that is of course coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, And perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? (laughs) Well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago. 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he he was simply a a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in Sir Alf Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre, 
can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it peters i think probably well i was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players i did again mm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of england and west ham and martin peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as martin's concerned i think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looks upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top. He's absolutely vital for a, a, for a business football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to, to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alfred Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, 
we've got somebody in the group who doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark. Mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I like I was going to play, and didn't start because of just a lack of form, I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know, in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Well, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of, very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not 
you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but no, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did... Uh, um, but then again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and, uh, and Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, 
you, but, you don't but have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again it's ast- absolutely astonishing astonishing and do you think could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today yes I think so I think yes no, mm. no question at all I think they uh, Ron Greenwood yeah well, the, the answer straightforward answer is yes um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes I can elaborate as much as you want but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that, struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned. 
uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and uh, and just an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word is is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-minded, uh, single dedication, Dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not. Uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.